Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, I feature New York-based curator, author, dealer, and NFT artist Kenny Schachter. He has been curating contemporary art exhibits in museums and galleries and teaching art history and economics for more than 30 years. He was the recipient of a Rockefeller-supported grant in Mexico and contributed on several books. He has a regular column on Artnet in addition to writing widely for various international publications, including most recently New York Magazine and The Times Magazine UK. Kenny is presently the subject of a documentary and a Hulu ABC NFT film and has been profiled in the New York Times Magazine and London's Observer, Independent and Telegraph. After having made digital art for decades, he has spearheaded the traditional art world's adaptation of non-fungible tokens in 2021 and has lectured and written several articles for Artnet on the subject. He has curated wide-ranging NFTism exhibitions, a term he trademarked. Kenny has had retrospectives of his art in both New York and London, and he recently staged the first digital NFT group exhibit with Nagel Draxler Gallery in Cologne and showed with the gallery during Art Basel 2021. The Nagel Draxler Gallery will launch in Berlin a space dedicated to NFTs and blockchain-related art, and Kenny will inaugurate the gallery in January 2022. He also has a one-person show scheduled at Blum & Poe Gallery in Tokyo in 2022. Enjoy this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast featuring Kenny Schachter. Kenny, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast today. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. So let's jump in. Your artist, a writer, curator, dealer. You forgot teacher. Oh, teacher. <laughs> When did you recognize your interest in the visual arts? Um, late in life, because I never was aware that I didn't go to, I didn't even know art galleries existed until I was near 27, which makes me, even though I would say I'm pretty firmly entrenched in the machinations of the art world over the last 33 years, I'd be a fool if I wasn't after trying so hard to do so, painstakingly working so much at it. But I was never one of these people that you would speak to, read about, or know whose family took them to galleries and museums growing up. I never went to a single museum with my family ever. And like I said, I didn't know art. I didn't even know art could be bought or sold until I was nearly 27 years old. But before that, I, I wanted to do something that was creative and 
entrepreneurial. And my mother was creative, not in a fine art sense, more in a kind of style slash fashion slash craft, crafty. I remember her painting a wall in the basement. Uh, she passed away when I was 13. And uh, so somehow it was coursing through my circulatory system, but I was actually unaware of any physical art world. Mm-hmm. Can you say what you enjoy the most? I mean, I love to write, or I love finishing writing. It's like running. You like it when you're done and counting how many hours you ran for or miles. And I guess I, I do like the process. I like the process of going through certain experiences and recording my thoughts as in real time. And then I send notes to myself via email from my telephone. And then from there, I create an outline with all the material. I sort of congregate it into one file. And then I love to sort of see it go from these fragments. I, it goes from an experience, my interpretation as it's happening. Then it goes into a file and, and then I create the arc of a story with the beginning, middle and end. And then I love to see it concretize like poetry, not, not poetry, obviously, when I'm writing about the art world. It's anything but poetry. Although I have written art poems and I just wrote, I've written a half a dozen songs over the last 30 years. What I love about art is it has this childlike aspect to it where I had a shitty childhood and I'm not complaining because it made me the person I am today. I had trouble speaking in public. I stuttered. I was I was overweight. I didn't communicate much. I had an unsupportive dad and my mother passed away. So it was largely alienation in action, in inaction. Although I would always cut and paste images from magazines onto a wall in my bedroom. And in a sense, not much has changed. In, and that's how I continue to express myself by recontextualizing imagery that surrounds us. There's so much, I rarely read fiction. And I just think that the things that people do to, to one another, although there are some awfully great things that happen amongst ours in the community, that we establish for ourselves, but there's a hell of a lot of awful things and hypocritical things, seemingly even more so in the art world. But anyway, so back to your question, which I didn't forget. I love to make things, whether I'm having help to effectuate them in the fabrication, but I love to conceptualize them. I studied philosophy and political science, and then I went to law school just to hide because there was no philosophy job and I didn't want to capitulate (laughs) too much. So law school was a good place, but I worked full time throughout law school, told my family and my employers that I was in night school, but there was no night school. So I I ostensibly took the classes, never attended, and then took the exams, managed to scrape by, and then took the bar exam. But so I love to, I love teaching. I love to spend a lot of time studying and learning, whether it's through reading, seeing, or speaking to people. And then I love to share that information with as many people as possible to, because the old world, I say the only word it knows is no. It's always, I mean, there are these unwritten stipulations about you can't say this, you can't do that. These kind of rules of engagement. And uh, because I never took an art class until I was teaching one at the new school in 1992, I never took an art making class other than a drawing from life class when I was in law school. And now I've been teaching art history and seminars and various lectures for going on 30 years. 
Most recently, I've been 10 years a professor at the University of Zurich, uh, teaching a studio art making class at School of Visual Arts and an art history class most recently at NYU, a history of design. So I love thinking about things and I love to express it and to whether through writing, art making, uh, or teaching. Mm-hmm. Those are the three things I care the most about. Curating is fun. I like to engage with other artists and art doesn't exist in a vacuum. You need an audience to, to complete the transit, the equation, the transaction <laughs> when there's one. For the most part of my career, I was always a not-for-profit by default, not for lack of trying. Interesting. Do you consider yourself an outsider? 100%. I mean, I've never had an art job or an art class that I didn't create myself. I'm completely self-wrought in relationship to fine art. I mean, I think that contemporary art or conceptual art is giving physical expression to ideas. So in that sense, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you made a, a comment about the rules of engagement. Do you feel these rules and the inequities in the art market, those things combined, how do you feel new emerging artists are impacted by those? On the commercial side, the art world is 99% white, still old white guys that generally fuel the business, the economics of it. On the artists, on the art making side, over the last 10 years, there's been an enormous amount of the floodgates have been open where there's been more degrees, more levels of equality than ever before in the history of art, more opportunities for more people than ever before. And artists of color, artists of different sexual orientations, women artists, I still say this, we're not close to parity. If you look at any given year with the overall auction results, the public records of prices fetched for artworks, it's still predominantly male and white male. But those the, the gaps have been shortened dramatically and radically over the last decade. So in that regard, things are getting much, much better than from when I started 30 plus years ago. A lot of things are changing. So let's get on the topic of technology. Do you feel technology is camouflaging the transfer of wealth? I mean, it's hardly camouflaged. There's been $2 trillion of Uh, market capitalization in Bitcoin alone. So there's a whole, I mean, literally the ETH is in the ether. (laughs) The crypto, which I was always, I had zero interest and I was reticent about. I'm not a money person. I'm not a good business person. I always say that as an art dealer, I wasn't capable of selling drugs to a drug addict, (laughs) nor would I particularly want to. From the first day I started, I called myself an idiot, idiot savant. I would go to museums and I when I was in college, between procrastinating, say, and I thought that art went from the artist to a museum. I just think that, um, I mean, there's a vast amount of wealth that has been created digitally in cryptocurrency, but, um, you know, this, the art world is so diffuse and so widely spread that you can't make any sweeping generalizations about the breadth of such a big, I mean, it's like 64 billion last year, the art market. I think in the next three to five years, NFTs in particular are going to eclipse that, the total breadth, the total scale of the art market, 
will be uh, surpassed by NFTs since it's already in, well into the billions of dollars. And NFTs have only been around for three years and in earnest only not much more than a year. So I don't think anything's, I mean, people claim falsely that there's, you know, complete transparency in digital currency and the blockchain, but that's, that's, that's not true. A lot of people operate anonymously through pseudonyms and anonymous wallet addresses. So, I mean, there's always going to be a bell's curve of morality, integrity, and ethics in life. And greed is a very strong human impulse, whether it's in the art world or Goldman Sachs, it's the same. And it's, again, a misconception to think that there's a dis disproportionate amount of bad behavior in the art world. And because in relationship to other sectors where there's lots of money swirling around, I would say it's at least the same, if not even less so than most people would imagine. So the NFT market is fairly young. Not entirely. I mean, I'll let you know on Tuesday, I'm, I'm letting one of the NFT platforms stage a dinner at my house. Oh. And they're having 25 of their collectors come. So these people will be unmasked largely. I mean, one of the collectors who got in touch with me, who operates under a pseudonym and owns a bunch of my pieces, has identified themselves. So a lot of these people will be, I mean, they're going to be sitting in my house eating dinner. So I'll get to know who they are, some of them. Do you feel that they're astute or have a strong understanding of these new technologies, specifically NFTs? Well, these people are the people that are, I would say, the lion's share of the NFT market is constituted by tech investors. So, yes, I would say 100% of them are tech savvy. You have to be just to open a MetaMask account or to know how to cold store your digital currency, which is like, you know, not storing your money on MetaMask or various other vulnerable type of technologies. But anyone who's engaged as a collector, maker, or, you know, gatekeeper, because the digital community has just as many, it's a different, it's a parallel universe to the traditional art world. And they collide from time to time, but they're still largely separate, although that will remain less and less the case over the ensuing years. But um, so I would say, like, I mean, if you ask another question, which I'll ask for you, what's the extent of NFT collectors that are cognizant of art history? And I would say it's in reverse proportion to how uh, digitally native they are and how much they know about technology. I mean, the fact is that the majority of the buyers don't know about art history and not only that, but they don't, they don't care about art. They're not interested who House or Worth is or Barbara Gladstone. They couldn't care less. So I think that's going to change and these worlds will more and more coincide as we get to know each other <laughs> in these separate meta communities. And, uh, but I find it terribly refreshing that there's a lot, you know, a lot I guess they have their own problem. You can always find shortcomings in anything, or I will <laughs> as a critic, but I think that there's a whole other set of issues and there's a lot less exclusivity, snobbery, and hierarchical problems like the all world, the traditional all world is rife with. Mm -hmm. do, do you find these collectors have collections? Yeah, I mean, look, I know some people that have a short-term horizon of one minute and I know other people I can't, you show me an art collector that's never sold a piece of art ever, 
And I always say they belong in a vitrine in the Natural History Museum. They're few and far between if they even exist at all. On the other hand, I know a few NFT collectors that have never sold an NFT ever. So it's such a misconception to say that all NFT art sucks. All NFT art is about computer games and Pepe the Frog. All collectors are short horizon flippers and speculators. The fact is that nobody complains about flipping in relationship to digital art because baked into the smart contract is a royalty which exists in perpetuity where the artist is remunerated anywhere from two to 10% or more if the artist chooses so, and they get residuals every time a work is resold. And the best thing about it in relationship to how uh, sleazy various aspects of the art market remain, I mean, 90% of the transactions in the fine art world happen uh, outside of contractual arrangements between parties. And by nature, NFTs are born, they're a digital certificate of authenticity, which is a smart contract piggybacked on an Ethereum token or other cryptocurrencies that work within the NFT space, like Tezos or Solana or uh, Polkadot. But in the smart contract, they, I love this term, it just sits so well with me, trustless contracts. <laughs> I mean, the reason, the reason they were lawyers is because everyone flouts the legality of a contract where there'd be no lawyers. Contracts are built to be broken. That's just the nature of human intercourse. But with a smart contract lodged on the blockchain, when I get a, when I get a royalty residual from a deal, from the reselling of my artwork, the money is automatically apportioned where without any human interaction. So it's called a trustless contract. Regarding the artists that have interest in the NFTs, would you say it's early, mid or late career? How is it distributed? Do you see some of the older established artists dabbling in this market or at least curious about it? Well, I would say, again, the majority of NFT artists are digital actors. They're not, I mean, I know of one artist who's a kind of conceptual artist who employed algorithmic uh, equations and uh, software into their art. I know many artists like that. One of them I know is 61. Another one I know is 51. So it's, you know, there's so many, the, the world loves generalizations. And I mean, they could always be a modicum of truth in a cliche because that's how they come into formation. But there's always going to be something to disprove it simultaneously. So, uh, I mean, there are Jeff Koons is working on an NFT with Pace Gallery, who's opening a new platform. Um, Urs Fisher, who's in his early 40s, has done an NFT. Tom Sachs, these are more artists that would be squarely within the traditional art world um, universe, has done an, a series of NFTs. And uh, so there's artists of all stripes that are doing NFTs from all different continents in the world, from Asia and Africa. I just sold a piece of mine in Tokyo today in NFT. So, and also like, I mean, one of the most touching, insane thing, I mean, I've been making digital art for, for 30 years, but I honestly resigned myself to the fact that I would never in a million years uh, make a living from my own art. And I remember like if I was going to blow a candle out and had a wish, besides wishing for the continued health of my family, would be a hope, a forlorn longing that I could somehow make a living from my own artwork. 
Yet I resigned myself, like I said, to the fact that would never happen. I'm in my very late 50s. <laughs> and yet in the past eight months, more, uh, more of my works have been, have been sold and resold and resold and resold uh, than I ever could have fantasized about. So I pinch myself and knock on wood that, I mean, again, like this is a complete... You know, like one artist I found on Instagram was the democratizing record ball that blurred geographical boundaries. Whereas in the past, you'd have to send photographic slides from one person to another via mail to convey an image. Then with the advent of social media, uh, you were able to expose your work to a wide audience of people through Instagram. But there was you still had to rely on established structures within which to sell your art, which was either if you're lucky enough to be able to do it off of Instagram, or you'd have to rely on the status quo of galleries. And not till NFTs began in earnest was this kind of um, system that empowered artists not only to be able to show their work, but also to be able to have, a, have access to a more. It's all about access. Mm-hmm. And NFTs in the best, in the best way have provided artists that employ some digital means in the creation of their art to be able to create scarcity through a certificate of authenticity lodged on the blockchain and to sell their work. Young people, old people, and in-between people. Right. Thank you, technology. Uh, Not always thank you, social media, but thank you for the technology that provides that. Social media, again, like the traditional art world lives on Instagram and the NFT world lives on Twitter and Discord. So... You can't, even more so than ever, as an artist, you, you're reliant on social media to promote yourself, to cultivate and nurture an audience. So social media is integral to this. I, I, I wildly disagree with anyone who uh, dismisses social media. I've had countless uh, opportunities that have sprung from Instagram and Twitter and Discord and forged innumerable relationships in real life with people that I met off social media, too many to even recount. So it makes no sense to, to dismiss social media in any way. In fact, it's like I said, you can't really uh, function more so than ever. You're reliant on Twitter and Instagram and Discord in order to communicate. It's a soapbox to stand on like Speaker's Corner in the UK and screen. Yep, they're free uh, marketing platforms, essentially. So, I mean, I think for Instagram for me is becoming more and more problematic because the prevalence of algorithms that, well, first of all, the, the, the what do you call it, censorship is downright fascistic. And the fact that it dictates, you know, not even your own network of supporters get to even see what you're doing. There are all these other issues in play that regulate behind the scenes who gets to see what, when. And I just find it the kind of omnipotence of this platform is becoming really, um, it annoys the crap out of me, to be honest. I've been censored all the time. I get thrown off all the time. I get shadow banned, which is a way where you're allowed to stay on, but you don't have the same exposure you would have as a regular person. I mean, I just find it insidious that so much editorial control could be, you know, in the hands of veritably one person. 
totally agree on that one. So what are you most excited about right now? Well, I'm just, I can't believe, like, I feel like kissing the ground, like when the Pope lands in a new jurisdiction, but I just can't believe at this stage of my life. I mean, I sold a piece. I like to say it, but I have 2 million yen today, which is between 15 and 20,000 US dollars. But I mean, it's not relative. It's a lot of money for me. It's a lot of money for, I mean, emerging artists, you could be a hundred and be an emerging artist or 16. Age is, is irrelevant. But like I said, I mean, the art world is, is, is about access and the art world is constantly pigeonholing people. And really it has all of these um, aspects that are created to just keep people out, barriers or distinctions. And I mean, as someone who has been a curator, who has dealt art to make a living, doing all the disparate things I do, you would think, I mean, for me, it's all under the umbrella of art and it's one, it's one practice, whether I'm teaching it, writing about it, making it or curating a show or staging an auction to sell some bits and pieces of my collection. And I do it in a conceptual way, which is unlike any other auction probably ever done before. I've done a series of sales called The Hoarder, which is a pejorative term to describe someone who collects stuff, <laughs> which is purposeful and self-critical and deprecating. And then I have no reserves, which is unheard of. I say, my loss is your gain. And I mean, it's a way for me to create a liquidity moment because I don't have a job and I don't have steady income. And I draw like 90% of an audience that with a million years never patronize an auction house out of fear that things would be prohibitively expensive. So I just love upending the status quo and democratizing things and breaking down hierarchies. And like, I mean, I go, I mentor people. I'm con I, I, I shepherded like literally hundreds of people into the NFT arena by walking them through the process and basically dispelling their fears and trepidation about getting involved. And I find that I get, I derive as much joy and satisfaction from that practically as creating a market for my own art. So do you consider yourself an innovator? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not the most innovative. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the best, but I take risks and I have no fear of making an ass of myself, which I, I've perfected that. I would say, and my kids certainly never let me forget about how I humiliate them at every turn. But I mean, I was the first person within the kind of traditional art world to go out on a limb and become uh, a near evangelist for NFTs. And how I early, early on, it dawned on me how borderline revolutionary in relationship to the history of the art market or the art world that this would become, could become, and in a very short order has become. So I would say I'm an innovator because I'm not scared. I'm old. I have enough art stashed away that I could sell bits and pieces piecemeal to make a living. And yet, like, I have no vested interest and I have nothing to lose because I've been doing this for 33 plus years. It's my life. It's my passion. I mean, with all the things we're talking about, you can categorize pigeonhole you know, you do this, you do that, there's this, 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 and the other thing. But really, unlike a lot of people in the art world, I consider myself to be an old-fashioned connoisseur in certain regards, like art artists like Paul Tech or Vito Conchi. I've written for MIT, for Springer Verlag, essays for catalogs and books. So 
I love art and that we can start and finish this conversation with those three words. I love art. I'm so passionate and it's created this mentality of extreme uh, doggedness and tenacity. And that's really the ingredients to my career is that I just don't give up. I've never stopped. I developed my own way to virtually have a one person show every month by creating, innovating, if you will, you said it, uh, I created a platform to showcase my art when I had no market and no audience. And the way I did that was to embed my articles with uh, either animations of my making or manipulated photographic imagery illustrating my articles. So uh, every month I would have one, if not two or three, one-person shows seen by some of the greatest eyes in the art world because they like to read my writing, which was uh, polemic, provocative, but uh, I've been in this field for so long. I'm an investigative journalist on a certain level, and people, there's very few people in the world today that go out on a limb and have a basic point of view about anything. People are so cautious and so scared uh, that there's like a zero-sum game that every time you do something, someone's going to stand to lose something. But like I said, I've been doing this for so long, I'm not beholden to anyone for anything at this point, other than the people that have bought my art, which I feel a tremendous lifelong responsibility to. But aside from that, I could not give a fuck. <laughs> so I have one more question for you. This has been a great talk. Given all your experiences, what would you say is the purpose of art? I mean, for me, art informs my, my art is in a cliche way, it's transformative, but let's just say that there have been studies at Harvard and various hospitals in the world where studies have revealed that living with art uh, results in shorter hospital stays, requiring less medication, reduction in anxiety, lowering of blood pressure. Art, art gives meaning to my life in the most basic way. I love it because it's altruistic. It's, it's both for profit and capitalistic, but at the same time, it's much deeper than that. It's about learning. I'm curious. I have an insatiable, voracious appetite for all things art from all different periods of all different varieties and mediums. So I love to learn. And art is this incredible, rich context to my life. And yeah, it's really, uh, it's a window into, I think humans are the only species that have the capacity to, to create uh, to give material form to ideational thoughts. And in a way for me, it's just a mode of thinking. It's, it's a philosophical illustration in a sense. So art for me is just an extension of my mind and it's a way of thinking and a way of being and a way of communicating. Above all else, art is a means of communication and it's also a reflection of our time. And for me, like social, political, economic, those are the typical things that you would, like if you read a newspaper or a history book, these are the issues that you're grappling with. But I don't look at technology as X's and O's or machines. I look at technology as culture. And technology comes from people, whether it's artificial intelligence, virtual reality, you know, these things all derive from people interacting with things they've created technologically speaking, or other people and ideas. So for me, art is just 
it's another way, like language, it's a it's another way to to live, to communicate and to coexist with other people. Well, thank you so much for everything you do and um, for this insightful and cerebral conversation. Like if anyone's listening and you have a question, I answer every single DM, every email. I try my best to be able to be helpful to people. It takes the same amount of energy to shut someone down as it does to just answer a question. And it gives me great joy to be inspirational to other people. And it's very, it's part of what I do, part of my program. So thank you for speaking to me, for listening to me. And I hope to meet you soon. It's been great. It's been great. I'll see you on Instagram. And uh, hopefully, yes, I'll meet you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.